as human beings, those part of the, the, the trend tend to last quite longer than expected. When we think about U.S. equities, uh, who would have told us in 2012 or 13 that would be in a nine years long expansion, would have been the first to doubt about right. it. Right, yeah. And, uh, and at a point, therefore, we don't want to be too uh, reactive in terms of money management. We want to, to stay in for the longest possible part of that convergent phase. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today my co-host Moritz Siebert and I are joined by Jean-Jacques Duo, who is the founder and CIO at Arctic Blue, which is part of the $15 plus H2O Asset Management Group. Now, JJ, thanks so much for coming on the podcast with Moritz and me today. We really appreciate you taking time out to do this, and we're very excited about our conversation today. Now, there is an interesting story behind your firm and your journey in particular, and the question of why you created the strategy the way you did. So why don't we start with that? Tell us about your journey and, and what you've been up to in all these years. Well, thank you first to, to, to having me, both of you. I'm extremely honored to be part of this, uh, of this podcast that I've been listening for many, many years now. Thanks. The, the journey of Arctic Blue started uh, in Canada when I moved to the Great North in 2007 to join the Sovereign Pension Fund of Quebec. And uh, we uh, developed, implemented systematic strategy with a specific approach by asset class taking into account the panel of market participants and their specificities. In uh, Arctic Blue, the name came uh, from the fact that uh, one day a friend of mine was uh, working for uh, administration of Canada, and uh, we end up in Nunavut, which is north of Quebec, with a cargo plane, and uh, temperature was around uh, minus 43, and I just uh, land. It was uh, pretty, pretty cold, <laughs> and the sky was extremely blue, and uh, there was a, a sign with the distance to the uh, polar cycle. And I thought that, well, that if one day I'm creating my own fund, I will look at a name like Arctic Blue. And at the same time, the logo we use, which is an Inukshuk, which is that man made of stone, and it's a directional marker in the Great North built by the Inuit uh, population. And uh, for us being directional traders, I thought it was uh, maybe also a good complement to the to the story. Yeah, no, absolutely. Very interesting. I mean, for me, at least, the, the whole structure and, and how you've used the, the background that you have, you know, in terms of 
creating your strategy, thinking about what it is you want to achieve is quite unique. I've not really come across that before. Why don't you take us back a little bit in terms of your professional background and how that influenced you in uh, in creating the the strategy and and the philosophy behind it, perhaps? Well, I, I started my my career uh, at uh, Société Générale, and um, I stayed there for a bit more than ten years. And uh, around uh, 1997, I start to manage a group of proprietary traders, taking a risk myself and analyzing their performance and their PLs. I start to sit close to them, taking notes about their behavior, and I was interested by human reaction regarding uh, risk taking and risk taking in a different trading environment, different volatility regime. Uh, is this trader is patient, impatient? Uh, is it rigorous in terms of risk? Is it reactive? Is it opportunistic? And we learn great lessons by people making money in a consistent basis, but also the ones that are losing money in a consistent basis. And I thought that at a point, I, I developed sometimes some frustration around some seasonal patterns in banks where you start to be asked to uh, reduce your risk exposure around October, November, <laughs> uh, quite famous bonus time those days, and uh, where a lot of opportunities in the marketplace could not be captured by people like us. So I start to read a lot about a firm I think you know well, Niels, uh, <laughs> Den Capital Corp and uh, John Henry and uh, sure. really the, 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 the turtles and all the, the, the legend, uh, amazing individuals that gave birth to our industry. Yeah. And I thought that trend following was uh, an, an amazing uh, part of the story, but maybe it could be complemented by some contrarian approach mm-hmm. and also taking the, the trend by cutting it in two parts, mm-hmm. like breakout at the beginning, then trend, then contrarian. And all the, 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 the chain of, uh, of those different phases in the momentum cycle were relating about the impact of a new information hitting the, the price and creating a different type of positioning by market participants. Mm-hmm. And I thought that when a new information is hitting the price, it tends to create a surprise effect and the market goes from a a very precarious uh, equilibrium to an unbalanced distribution in the price action to then reach a point where, or it could be a maximum favorable excursion or it could just mean revert. And that first part being very impulsive, I guess that would have need to... Uh, developed uh, a systematic trader that would be very reactive at entry and very opportunistic at money management level. You know very quickly if you're wrong and therefore you have tight stop losses and you have a multiple array of profit taking depending on the shape of the expansion. And then the market tend to pause and you end up having a second type of crowd coming in, some second layer of human beings keen to take risk. As the information is more analyzed, accepted, and you observe more of a convergence type of price action where that information is becoming really concentrated and you are moving from a game of reactivity in the first phase to a game of patience. Mm -hmm. As human beings, those part of the, the, the trend tend to last quite longer than expected. When we think about U.S. equities, uh, who would have told us in 2012 or 13 that would be in a nine years long expansion, I would have been the first to doubt about right. it. Yeah. And uh, 
And at a point, therefore, we don't want to be too uh, reactive in terms of money management. We want to, to stay in for the longest possible part of that convergent phase to the point where that information is becoming so well-known in public media and completely over-consensual that you need to then think about introducing a third class of market players that are the contrarians mm -hmm. and playing on the exhaustion of that momentum. And you end up having three groups. You have your very reactive traders, you have your very patient traders, and you have your contrarian traders. And you want to empower them by giving them the same level of risk and being totally independent from each other and not talking to each other, which I think was uh, also an interesting point. In some firm where I've been op operating, you end up having quite a, a significant correlation risk between discretionary traders as they tend to talk to each other, yeah, sure, feel guess, good yeah. about it, and you end up having some potential risk of max peak to value drawdown on, the, on that front. Yeah, a, a firm where I've I've had the chance to 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 manage capital for Millennium uh, Capital Management at Millennium, uh, we were not very encouraged to talk to each other in order to be sure that their low correlation between the team was maintained. And I think today they have more than 200 investment teams and it's a uh, very successful firm on, on that front. So really keeping that independence for each model with uh, each of them arrive their own risk and you end up back to our beginning of the, of the journey, uh, creating that desk of uh, automated traders with their independence under the supervision of another set of algorithms that are the, the risk manager in order to avoid correlation and concentration yeah. risk. So that that's really more of an empirical analysis at the beginning of human behavior uh, regarding risk-taking and market price action compared with some other systematic funds that have more uh, a pure statistical mm -hmm. analysis sure. uh, yeah. that we use, but at a later, at a later stage. Yeah. I'm interested, so when you did the initial analysis and you're making your notes about these traders, were there more of a certain kind of traders, meaning are discretionary traders, do they tend to be more contrarian or mean reverting? Because I'm thinking that finding discretionary traders that have the mindset of being a trend follower is perhaps more rare than it is for someone who will take the profits quicker and so on and so forth. Uh, you're absolutely right. Really, the... On, on that point, I could not add anything else because I, I agree 100%. But back to the early part of your question, what was striking was the inability for a very large percentage of them not to take their losses very quickly, but more try to average by being incremental when momentum was against their initial position mm -hmm. and not was what some trend followers doing, which is adding when the momentum tend to be in, in, in the favor, in the favor yeah. of the position. Yeah. You know, there's this famous, I, uh, this famous line by Paul Tudor Jones, which says, uh, losers average losers. I think that's what you're describing, yeah, right? It, so yeah. you're in a loss-making position and then you average your price by buying more on the way down. Yeah. Not a good idea in general. No, no, no. I mean, another thing that is striking to me when I was preparing for our conversation today is that, so obviously you thought about the sort of the system design very differently, which is intriguing. 
but I also thought your 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 choice of playground, so to speak, you know, the markets you decided to trade. I'd love to hear the background of that because it's an unusual portfolio to some extent in our space. Yes, so as I uh, join the Sovereign Pension Fund of Quebec in Canada, due to the very large portfolio and multi-assets uh, that uh, they were uh, managing, I thought that an approach by asset class was making sense. And digging into that early uh, observation of the portfolio, I found that the commodity traders tend to be very different from the the market participant in equity market. When you look at commodities, you have on one side the producer and the uh, consumers, so the, the Starbucks versus the uh, Brazilian coffee producers on one side that come to the marketplace to guarantee themselves a, a price to buy or, or to sell their the, the, the stuff they need. And on the other side, you tend to have people like, like us with some financial techniques with a potential asymmetry in our favor to harvest those insurance premium uh, wrote by the commercials. But when you look at the dynamic between commodities and, and, and the overall asset class, you tend most of the time to, to pay to wait, i.e. you cannot apply traditional cash flow analysis such as in real estate or equity or fixed income where you get paid to wait via dividend rents or coupons. And therefore... I think it was important to take a very agnostic type of uh, uh, view of that playground and equi-allocated risk for breakout trend uh, and contrarian models as uh, weather, supply disruption, geopolitics tend to send very little warning for abrupt of the direction of prices yeah. in commodity space. So that was really uh, that approach for commodities and looking at uh, what were the most liquid markets and the correlation between them, between different complex and intra-complexes. And that, that, that was really the approach for commodities. And then we applied the same for fixed income, where uh, so an approach by silo where in fixed income, you still have a momentum engine, but uh, the curve is a very important component and therefore deploying a models specifically designed for curves. And for currencies, same momentum engine, but specific models developed for a carry on a 30 pair of currencies, including emerging, and a carry model with money management around it in a dynamic way instead of having those classic carry models that tend to just benefit from the interest rate differential, but all of a sudden try to have significant max peak to value drawdown. And then in the equity space, you end up having a bias to be long of equities. And we see those distribution of momentum that tend to last longer than in other asset classes when they are free to evolve, I would say, so which is a bit different than since mm -hmm. 2008 sure. when you look at fixed income <laughs> with QE analysis. But yeah, and you, you look at equity from corporate buyback to 401k to large sovereign pension fund uh, of Nordic or Middle Eastern countries that are Japan that are very large buyers of equities making the overall float less and less ample, I would say. And all the, the merger acquisition also on top of this. And therefore, if you want to bring a, an, an atypical type of proposal 
in the equity space, we have been uh, taking an approach where we would overweight the contrarian bias in order to bring cover, uh, if I may use the term, to long equity or long short type of portfolio in case you're exposed to dislocations such as in August 2007, for example. So it was really taking into account the nature of the, the, the panel of market participants in each asset class by not tweaking the model, but just applying the model with the same type of input, but with different weights based on the nature of the underlying momentum and what is the purpose of your strategy mm. in order to avoid to purely deliver uh, beta in phase uh, uh, like we've known over the past few years. Yeah. How, how many markets do you actually have in the portfolio? So in the in the commodity market, we have 20 markets okay. and that's a, a specific product okay. uh, that that is available in different type of right. formats. In equity, we, ha we have 60 different markets right. uh, and so on. So it's really segregated. We, we do not offer, uh, like most firms, a four-asset class product. Right, right. Interesting. I saw in your presentation that you're focused on commodities, and I saw the energies in there and a few others, but a relatively small portfolio, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe 10 markets or something like that. Is there a reason for that? And what impact does that have on your diversification, which I guess you're seeking to maximize? Sure, sure. So, so we are trading a, a 20 different markets in the, in the commodity space with a, a significant representation in terms of numbers uh, in AGS. Um, so that's expanded over time, the number of markets? Uh, Have you always yes. done that, actually? Yes, because uh, we, we, we basically used to trade AGS as a basket, uh -huh. and, and uh, we, we trade grains, soft, meats, Uh, and cotton individually. And, and then uh, in, in the energy space, we, we're trading the, the main markets. What has been for us uh, important is taking into account the, the correlation risk. And we tend to find that uh, we extract a very little diversification from the barrel when you look at the different product. And in terms of uh, risk reward, uh, mainly Sortino ratio, we thought that uh, it was a, a less attractive proposal for us. Uh, we tend to me to be mid to long term, uh, lower frequency, selective into our participation. Uh, and if you want to go even further about that, we may be doing something different, but I guess everybody you are interviewing... They will always say that they do something, doing something different. different. That's true. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we are binary. Uh, okay. So we really look at being in or out, but we are not incremental. Right. Even, uh, in, that is uh, when when yeah. momentum is positive. So the, the full amount of risk would be deployed at inception of the position when the signal has been cleared by some uh, signal-to-noise ratio mm -hmm. filter. Okay. And also when we are looking at uh, how also different uh, we can be uh, looked at, we, we have that uh, specific approach by, uh, by asset class, which, which I think also make us slightly uh, different. And those independent models Uh, having the ability to participate at different uh, locations through the momentum cycle in terms of, of trade positioning. So that, that, that gives us uh, at least a, a low correlation with most of, our, uh, most of our peers. Very interesting. Thank you. One other thing, if I may, that, that I found interesting was that most of the markets you're trading as futures, and then there have been a couple of products where, you, for instance, you don't trade the golf futures, you trade GLD. At least we found that in one of the presentations. Is there a reason why you're doing that, why you prefer the ETF as opposed to the futures markets? 
Well, the, the ETF tend to have two specificities. So we, we are trading futures in one program. We are trading in t ETF in the other, in the mm -hmm. other program. DTF is clearly not that efficient in terms of funding, so that's uh, that's the, the the first negative point. But on the positive side, we found that uh, the DTF market is uh, reflecting really uh, a participation of investors in gold without uh, the noise of the short-term high-frequency trading uh, during night session mainly. And in a, a very uh, noisy markets such as gold, and mainly since 2013, where we did not observe uh, the same type of distribution of directional opportunities than in uh, 20 years pre 2013, we we found that the the quality of the uh, of the signal was quite higher through the ETF. And also, you think that the ETF is being backed by physical, which is quite a bit different than the futures, where sure. there's always this mystery about the number of claims versus the effective amount of gold available. But I don't want, I don't want to sound like a gold bug here. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And then there were two other interesting markets I found in the portfolio next to the commodities, which was the VIX index and the US dollar index. Yeah. So the, the, the dollar index, obviously, uh, nearly 58% of euros as we speak, tend to capture the dynamic of uh, the correlation between uh, the dollar and, and commodities, which through the time is not always as stable as we think it is. So it act uh, as an alpha generation via uh, a currency hedge, even if the R index is, is treated in the same way than uh, the other markets. So that's that's the, the, the presence of, of the dollar index. And now the VIX, well, the, the VIX has been there because we, we, we could not identify the liquid volatility future uh, of commodities. Mm. And we looked at what is the largest asset class in the world with a, a liquid volatility instrument listed. And, uh, and we found that the VIX was acting as a good a warning signal on one side, a carry uh, generation on the other side. But uh, as our input take into account price, implied volatility, realized volatility, and we do not trade options, we do thought that the VIX was a, a, a good complement by, in a way, trading volatility as a sub-asset class. Have you seen changes in the VIX, actually, after XIV uh, disappeared? Have you yes, noticed been, uh, yes, changes? Yeah. Yes, because we, we, we have two types of, of, of models. We have the models that we take position uh, with, Right. Uh, that we described before. Yeah. And on the other side, we have filters. Mm. And those filters are analyzing relationship between different type of volatility. Yeah. Uh, and we've been more and more filtered uh, okay. out of the VIX market. Right. Interesting. interesting. And, and it's interesting because when you look at when uh, that uh, episode of dislocation happened at the beginning of the year, right. you look that the VIX has bottomed in November 2017 just with a print sub-9 and it's mm -hmm. then start to really increase until that uh, 
quite a, a, a volatile episode and since then never revisited no. th those low levels. So for us, November 17, there's an inflection point mm. in the market. So you, you could look at uh, uh, the VIX correlation with the five-year, 30-year spread in US Treasury. You could look at where we are in the cycle with the Fed. You could look at the trade war today, you could look at uh, geopolitical tensions, but there's clearly an inflection point in, in, in market behavior around that date that has been reflected by the VIX. Yeah, I mean, my, my observations seem to be that uh, not only has the volume dropped since uh, XRV sort of lost all their money, so to speak, but also uh, there's just fewer people who are willing to, to, to sell at the, at the very low level. So the, as you say, the bottom of, of the VIX seems to have gone up a little bit compared to last year. Um, uh, interesting. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the commodity side. So traditional trend following systems and It may not apply to to the way you do it, but but my my experience is that we tend to make more money on the upside. So we tend to to make more money from the long side trades compared to the short side trades. So I'm interested in in finding out whether you have the same experience with the way you trade commodities, and also whether maybe part of the struggle for for CTAs in in recent years may come from the fact that we've been in you know generally down markets or bear markets for for many commodities so perhaps opportunities have been harder to 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 capture have you thought about this have you noticed this have you uh, you know I think we've made more money uh, being short commodities than being long on our on okay. our side okay. mainly due to the contrarian models right of course which, which, yeah. which, 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 which makes, makes sense. sense yeah what we've been observing is a lower participation in the market Mm -hmm. Very large fundamental discretionary hedge fund that have uh, exited the, the playground. Okay. Uh, uh, also, uh, inflows uh, that were behind the uh, commodity rise from early 2000 to 2008, 2010 was uh, pension fund money and uh, commodity indexed money uh, that was protecting against inflation and also benefiting from the thematic of uh, a Chinese infrastructure uh, development. Yeah. And uh, since we've observed those very low and, uh, and sticky low inflation level, that, that money uh, is not uh, as aggressive and is not as part of the asset allocation. It used to be the case pre-2008. And so, therefore, we, we've seen some markets offering better diversification at market level. I think that when you look at the price action of uh, indices such as the Bloomberg Commodity Index or the GSCI, they are trending quite less. There's less correlation between commodities than when the commodity index was uh, dominating the, the, the price action right. in, in the first part of the, of the 2000 years. And therefore, the market are more back to the fundamentals. Okay. I'm thinking about sugar. Right. Well, we had amazing range from 11 to 24, sure. back to 11 now. Right. Uh, uh, over the past few days in sugar and that yeah. has been a very generous market with sure. us. Some markets are, have structurally changed. I'm thinking about natural gas in the US. You know, uh, it's a market sure. that used to trade in back month, $20 when you take into account of the role uh, pre-2008 and with the technology uh, of uh, based on the extraction of uh, shale gas, mm -hmm. we've seen a market ranging between high twos and, 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 and low fours, uh, a dollar. Mm -hmm. So it's a price divided by nearly five or even more. 
and that that also made the mid to long term directional opportunities less easy to catch in this market mm -hmm. so there has been a redistribution generally right. and and commodities are exhibiting more of a sort of a individual type of behavior okay. uh, with uh, uh, some successes yeah. and some disappointment too. Right, right. Uh, But more divergence in general in, in those markets, yes. it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and a very high concentration of volatility in some, uh, in, in some market, like the meats, for example. Okay, yeah, um, sure. Uh, on the other side, you know, you have a, a structural phenomenon of, of the, the, the very depressed prices for agriculture, mm. you know, and when you look uh, for the past 40 years, the, the overall price of agriculture has been quite uh, mind-boggling for sure. a lot of people based sure. on all the, the, the long-term positioning uh, due to demographics, growing demand, uh, evolution of uh, food habits in the world. And when you look at what happened uh, in terms of prices, at least on U.S. commodity uh, futures in the agricultural sector, it's been quite the opposite. Yeah. And we saw those prices really uh, going lower and lower and lower. Uh, if you look at the DBA, for example, as a basket of, uh, of, of agricultural futures, we saw uh, we are trading uh, at all-time lows. Right. That's the ETF you mentioned. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and that, that's all-time lows. Yeah. We're in a $16 handle. And, right. and, and that, therefore, I think that there's amazing gains of production in the U.S. Right. The, the farmers have been the first benefiting from U.S. banks to get cheap money uh, lended to them. And they made a, uh, tremendous gains uh, uh, in technology terms of and product absolutely, and, yeah. and therefore the, the supply is, uh, is is quite quite ample. Yeah, yeah, right. So 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 it sounds like that the concept of your strategy obviously took time to essentially formulate it from all the observations you talked about and so on and so forth. And I know I'm not phrasing it correctly, but but it seems to me that you you're sticking with your methodology. You don't really change it you don't and there is this debate which i find interesting and that is the the question you know uh, should we adapt our models to uh, to changing environment because clearly the environment as you su suggest do change or should we stay with a relatively unchanged approach to to trading where where do you stand on that and what what have you done uh, inside your own strategy when it comes to adapting it so the, the, the approach uh, stay unchanged mm -hmm. uh, and the bulk of the research, except the very classic uh, execution uh, tools and, and their efficiencies, yeah. and uh, it's been really uh, all about uh, money management and risk approach with uh, an, an ability to look at the position sizing, mm -hmm. uh, the evolution of the position sizing, right. the allocation through the different markets, and the ability to filter ourselves out of some very noisy episodes mm. and uh, always trying to find the, the, the right balance. I think we did a, a fair job in some markets. I'm mm. thinking about crude oil where mm -hmm. the distribution on the upside looks very uh, obvious when you look at the at the graph. Mm -hmm. But uh, as a participant, I think it's been quite more challenging. Setbacks were... Uh, yeah, quite violent, sure, sure. and in some other market, our presence has uh, naturally uh, been smaller and smaller. And I'm thinking one more time about net gas. Right. So uh, it, it's it's been really getting a, a higher reactivity 
and at the same time a higher filtering based on the price distribution if you want if we are in or if we are out of the market and it's, therefore it's been more the, the the money management part of the algorithm mm. that has been uh, covering the bulk of the research as well as an emphasis put on some an additional model brought to the uh, to the arsenal, okay. if I may use the mm. term, uh, sure. which is uh, the short-term reversal model. Okay, okay. I know if you've got some questions, Moritz, but I wanted just to f- finish off on, on this topic because I, I think when you talk, there's, there's always something new that I, I, I want to ask you. And, and one thing that springs to mind was what you mentioned earlier about when you get in, you get in full and you stay invested full until the signal change. I find that really interesting and so I'd love for you to explain why you find that to be advantageous for for your approach. And also, I'm wondering a little bit when it comes to capacity. I mean, commodities, of course, in itself uh, has lower capacity than many of the financial markets. But also, then ad- adding on top of that, trading the full size might actually limit the capacity in some ways because you you you're dependent a little bit more on liquidity in a certain time when you want to trade without incurring too much slippage compared to getting in slowly, getting out slowly, if I can put it like that. How, what are your thoughts about that? What, Why do you find that, that the way you do it suits your objective, so to speak? In terms of the different facilities offered by the exchanges, if we go into the really nitty-gritty of it, you have a, a trading asset like TAS, which, which are offering you a, a very good amount of, of liquidity with a minimum slippage. If you're considering that the closing price give you the validation of a midterm pattern. That that makes your slippage for the, the, the more classics model being uh, being not an issue. Okay. Now, stop entry on some contrarian models need indeed to have a very uh, low footprint. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and that's been part of the research around the uh, uh, implementation of those triggers, taking into account uh, the volume. So right. do you spread the volume on right. uh, uh, several maturities? Uh, do you intervene at different times? So a lot of research has been uh, put on the distribution of the volume intraday mm-hmm. around market on open, market on close, TAS, uh, sure. block trades. That, that I think gives you uh, an interesting uh, new dimension uh, versus the very traditional volume and open interest type of analysis. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.